Hello, friends, and welcome to another episode of the Nugget Climbing Podcast. I am your host, Stephen Dimmitt. Today's guest on the podcast is Natasha Barnes. Natasha is a former professional climber who received a doctorate degree in chiropractic medicine in 2012 and now has her own private practice in San Francisco where she focuses on strength training and rehabilitation for rock climbers. Natasha's interest and career in strength training and rehab came out of her own experience with climbing injuries and her frustration finding helpful advice from the Western medical system. She eventually became interested in powerlifting and is now very competitive in that sport and was the national champion for her age category and weight class in 2019. We talked about some of the common misconceptions about strength training, about what it takes to gain weight from strength training, and why Natasha actually spends much of her time trying to convince rock climbing clients to gain weight to climb harder. We got into the weeds a bit talking about calorie balance and why Natasha encourages her clients to track their calories and macros to see where they're at in their diet, and she shared some of her recommendations for protein and carbohydrates for rock climbers. We also talked about the importance of taking off seasons as athletes and what that should look like for climbers. We talked about tissue capacity and how our bodies adapt. And we talked about rehabbing climbing injuries and specifically what kind of protocol Natasha might give to someone who is rehabbing a finger injury. If you would like to work with Natasha or learn more about her, you can find her at natashabarnesrehab.com, and I will link to her website along with all the articles and resources we mentioned in the show notes at thenuggetclimbing.com. Huge thanks to the folks at Touchstone for connecting us, and I hope you guys get a lot of good nuggets out of this one. Please enjoy this powerful conversation with Natasha Barnes. Are you feeling you all ready? Yeah, ready to go. Cool. Well, I'm rolling. I've done the sound check and you sound great. So we are ready to go. Perfect. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I thought it'd be fun to, to start with how you came onto my radar. And we actually do have a mutual friend, um, someone who I haven't seen in years, an old roommate of yours. But I think she maybe pointed me towards that Park Life video. So Louder Than Eleven made a film called Park Life about bouldering in Yosemite. And it, it featured you pretty heavily. And I think in that one you climbed like Bruce Lee, this cool V8. And I think you did the seam, this V11. I was like, who is this person? And I remember watching a separate video of you climbing Drive On, which is a, yeah. a V11 that like I think Randy Pirro put up maybe. It was at least he climbed it in the one of the old dosage movies, I think Dosage Five. Yeah. And I've always I've never even tried the boulder. I've just always wanted to climb that boulder. It just looked so cool. And I was like, oh man, she's a badass. <laughs> but yeah, so yeah. I and then, you know, you kind of went off my radar for a long time and eventually came back on and I realized you were doing a lot of rehab work and, and strength training and stuff with clients. But I'd love to hear, first off, do you have a most memorable or favorite boulder problem from that chapter of your life? Oh, man. Yosemite is just so good. It's hard to not name like every climb I've done in Yosemite. <laughs> um, I would probably have to say that Thriller is probably one of my favorites. Mm. 
Like a highball V10? Yeah, just because it's such a great line and it's like hard, but it's also technical. And one of the things that I like about climbing in Yosemite is that everything you like a lot of the climbs you do there are ground up Mm. so like you can't practice the moves so as soon as you unlock a move you're all of a sudden you're into like territory on climbs you've never climbed on Mm. before basically Mm -hmm. which is kind of a fun way of like it's kind of a fun process and it's different than a lot of a lot of places where you can try all the moves and and then go for like ascend yeah Um, but yeah yeah, that's definitely going to be one of my favorites and probably drive on too. Okay. It's really crimpy, but it's also really technical and really body position dependent and okay. also conditions dependent, at least for me. So like all of those things kind of have to come together for, uh, for you to make the send. Mm. Totally. I know you're less focused on climbing now than you were at that time. And obviously your priorities have changed and you have changed a lot as an athlete. It was interesting when we talked on the phone last week, you were kind of saying like, I mean, you're a power lifter now. You still climb, but you're a power lifter. And I think you told me that you're 30 or 35 pounds heavier than you were then, but you still feel like you climb about the same, which is fascinating to me. But I wonder, do you think you could climb something like that now? I wouldn't say I climb the same. I would say... I would theorize I can climb the same okay. because I just haven't, I haven't been training for climbing in the same way that I've been training for powerlifting in the last few years. Yeah. Yeah. And I have gained weight to be more competitive in powerlifting. But the interesting thing is I find myself not feeling weaker on the wall necessarily mm-hmm. given that like, I haven't really been training for climbing and I can like go and climb pretty hard and feel pretty strong on the wall. Um, so I would think that if I did do some some more concentrated, focused climbing training, that I I think I actually could probably climb harder than I did before. Yeah. I would just need my fingers to kind of catch up a little bit. But Mm. yeah, at some point I would like to do that. Um, And I might might do that soon. We'll see. (laughs) Cool. Okay. Got some state records I want to get first. Yeah. In powerlifting. <laughs> nice. How does that work? Is it is the record just based on combined total, or is it are the records for the individual lifts? And maybe I'm sure a lot of people listening to this don't even know how powerlifting works. So maybe you could give us a little bit of insight into that as well. Sure. Yeah. So powerlifting as a sport is basically you go and compete on the three big lifts, which is your squat, your bench press, and your deadlift, and in a powerlifting meet, you're given three attempts at each of those, so nine attempts total, to lift the most weight possible. So it's like a one rep max, basically, and you're tested on all three lifts. And then at the end, your lifts are added together, and a formula is applied um, to calculate strength to weight, and then you are given your score. Okay. There's different weight classes in powerlifting, because obviously, like, me someone who weighs 145 pounds competing against someone who weighs 200 pounds would be like not fair. Mm -hmm. So there's different weight classes. There's also age categories and you can get records in individual lifts. So like a squat record, a bench record or a deadlift record. And you can also get a record for your total, which is all of those added together. What is it that you're targeting? So... 
I think I could actually get the state record for all of them. <laughs> all of them individually? Yeah. Nice. Um, Hell yeah. For for the submasters category, which is my age category, um, and my weight class category, basically. So I've done the squat record matches my current one rep max, which I've hit in a competition already before. Okay. And the bench record and the deadlift record, I've already beaten in training. So um, oh boy. I, just, I just need to go do it at a meet, which I was about to do right before the pandemic hit. Um, oh, I was literally like about to do a meet like that weekend that the lockdown happened in California. Oh, so yeah. uh, <laughs> I was really bummed and I ended up like hitting those numbers. Um, I ended up like maxing out at home at my home gym and I hit those numbers like pretty easily. Oh, at home so i was really bummed out but maybe next year you can't just like submit an iphone video no unfortunately you have to yeah. have like ju judges like refs there watching to make sure that you totally are doing them um, at standard so is it harder at all with the pressure on it to meet or does that bring out the best in you how is your experience with competing i really love competing yeah i love that pressure like it's it just makes me try harder than I normally would. So yeah. um, I really thrive. And I, I really have felt like that with climbing and with powerlifting. And I've competed so much in climbing that I thought for powerlifting it would be easy. But I definitely spent probably like two or three of the first meets that I ever did. Like my first meet that I did in powerlifting, I thought I would be good to go because I was excited and I normally compete well under pressure. I totally bombed. <laughs> <laughs> um, so it took me like maybe like two or three meets to kind of get used to competing in powerlifting where I wouldn't like bomb or have like a subpar performance. But hmm. now I've done a few meets. I've done a lot of meets now. So kind of got that under control. But I, w I was surprised because I thought just having experience competing and climbing would have prepared me for competing in powerlifting, but it's just a different thing. Yeah, I was going to ask that. I mean, is there is there any mental carryover, you think, from one to the other, or is it just learning a new thing? I think so. I think it's just also like a different environment, though, and a mm. totally different sport. And, you know, I was like a newer athlete in, in powerlifting, so I wasn't 100% confident in like my skill. Mm-hmm. And also, like, I made the mistake of putting a lot of pressure on myself in my mm. first couple of meets. Like, I really wanted to hit certain numbers. And that's kind of like a recipe for failure because, you know, it's too much pressure. Um, so I think a good idea, not that anyone listening is going to do a powerlifting meet, but I think for anything like that, it's good to go into it with just, like, the idea of, like, practicing at a meet. So, like, the next meet that I did after that, my coach was like, okay, we're going to go in, we're going to go nine for nine, which means like hit all of my attempts, like not risk anything or, or risk failing, like just go in and hit stuff. I know I can hit and just check that box off of having like a successful meet. Cause it's mm. good. It's just good mental practice. Gotcha. So that's what I did and it helped. And I just got more comfortable. There's a lot that happens at a meet that doesn't happen in training. So you also have to prepare for that. Okay kind of like in climbing like you're not used to judges watching you you're not used to the time pressure you're not used to the crowd mm. so just things you have to practice got it i thought it'd be interesting to kind of go on the journey of you 
as a 22 year old pro climber, you know, what led you to where you're at now? I've heard you talk about kind of being plagued with different injuries. At one point I read something, I think you said, I never felt strong enough, no matter how much I trained. And I, it sounds like eventually you got a coach and that kind of shifted things around for you. Can you talk about that? Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, I think just climbing for a while, like will work for a lot of people and it worked for me for a while, but you know, eventually I, I wasn't sure how to get stronger. I wasn't progressing in my climbing. I wasn't, I was plateauing, you know, and I felt like no matter what I did training wise, I wasn't getting stronger. My technique was there. My finger strength was there, but I just wasn't progressing. Um, and I also just ended up with like a few injuries that really kind of changed the course of my climbing career. One of them being a pretty catastrophic finger injury that happened at a, well, after a climbing competition. Um, yeah, it was a dyno comp, right? It was a dyno comp. Yeah, so I did a the... climbing, yeah, I did a climbing comp and my finger was like sore and, you know, it's 22. So I was like, oh, okay, my finger's sore. Like, I guess that just happens sometimes <laughs> yeah. after a climbing competition. <laughs> I didn't really think anything of it. I was like, that's probably the thing, kind of thing where you like, you know, take a couple of days off and it's gone. So sure, yeah. I went ahead and did the dyno comp because that's on jugs. Like that shouldn't really be a problem. Um, and at the on the very first dyno, like not even latching a hold, just pushing off of the first jug to do the dyno, my finger basically felt like it exploded. My, oh my, my middle right finger. Oh. Yeah, and it got swollen immediately. And I'd never had like a serious injury like that. And for climbers, like finger injuries are pretty serious because we need our fingers. So, of course, I cried immediately because I was sort of at the time kind of rising up in the competition scene. Like I had won nationals that year. Um, I had won the Teva Games, which is now like the Vail World Cup competition. Hmm. I had won gold in that. Um, this competition that I was just at where I injured my finger, I had gotten third. So I was like pretty disappointed. <laughs> wanted yeah. to win it but um and then that's when it happened so I was like pretty disappointed because I was like this is it like I'm ruined like I'm never gonna get to this level again and ended up taking a bunch of time off for the injury because I didn't really know what to do I didn't I didn't know what rehab I should do doctors didn't really have answers you know doctors didn't understand climbing injuries especially then like they don't now for the most part, but even then, like, you know, people didn't even know about rock climbing. <laughs> yeah. Um, it, it wasn't as mainstream. So there weren't really any like rehab professionals that even worked with climbers. So I was just told to, to stop climbing. And, you know, um, that was a pretty frustrating thing to be told as someone whose livelihood depended on rock climbing. Like not only was like my, you know, the way that I make, made money was from climbing competitions and sponsors, but my whole identity as a person was wrapped up in climbing and being a professional climber. So, you know, not only is this injury stopping me from making money and being able to live, but I'm having like my identity taken away from me. Um, and that was pretty depressing. Was that just seeing a doctor that didn't understand climbing? Yeah, seeing a doctor that didn't understand climbing, talking to a couple of doctors who climbed at my gym, but, you know, obviously didn't know about these kinds of injuries. Mm. 
and like trying to research online where other climbers may have gone to get help for these things and I couldn't really find anything and you know the advice at the time was rest until it doesn't hurt and then start taping and climbing again so yeah (laughs) (laughs) I took like ended up taking four months off and you know, it still hurt, but it was like a little better. So I was like, okay, well, maybe I'll just go to the gym and try to climb on some jugs. And I did that and it still hurt. So I took another two months off. And then at that point, I was just so depressed and lost about like what to do with myself that sort of like gave up and was like, you know what, I don't like F it. I'm, I'm going to go climbing. Like, what's the worst that can happen? Like, if I make this injury worse, then maybe it's a surgical situation and then maybe there's a solution. So who cares? Hmm. So I decided to go climbing and, um, the climbing trip was awesome because we went to this area called Lost Rocks, which is in Northern California. So it's on a beach. It's on a pretty epic beach, actually. Lots of rocks. The Yurok Indian tribe lives on that land. It's their land. And they, (laughs) they believe that like, the rocks are their ancestors and the whole area just kind of has this like sort of magic vibe to it. It's Northern California. It's on the beach. There's like a redwood forest, like right up next to it. So it's pretty epic. And none of the climbs there have grades or names really. So there's no expectation. Um, So it was like a really fun trip because it also made me realize like, why I enjoy climbing, like, Hmm. you know, going out to epic places like that is pretty rad. And I think I had previously been distracted by like trying anything and everything that felt hard and not really like (laughs) appreciating getting outdoors, you know? Yeah. Um, yeah. So we went on this trip and I um, climbed on this, I'm just guessing it was like a V4. It kind of felt like around that grade. Okay. And I remember crimping on these crimps that were on it and it didn't feel right for my finger. It was like, Mm, I feel like I'm making it worse. Maybe I'm not sure, but I'm going to crimp on it anyway. Cause that's what I decided to do when I came here. <laughs> and then it, and then my fingers started getting better. Hmm. And this kind of like light bulb went off in my head. Like, Oh, you have to like use it hmm. to make it get better. Like you can't just rest and wait for it to get better. You have to make it get better. And that was kind of the start of like, a realization for me. Um, and from there I was able to get back into climbing. My finger just got better, better, better. Eventually I was able to get back up to the level I was at before. Um, not necessarily in like climbing competitions, but like climbing outdoors. But, you know, then I've, I had several other finger injuries, which were manageable. I was able, like, I understood how to like manage them a little bit better. So those got better. They weren't as bad. But I did have like several shoulder injuries that were very frustrating and started to prevent me from being able to do the kind of climbing that I wanted to do. And again, like (laughs) not a lot of great answers for that other than like, yeah, like do some rehab, like do the, you know, the classic band exercises for your shoulder, rest, stretch, work on your posture, those kinds of things. Okay. Um, And that, like, helped me a little bit to do some of those exercises and things, but it didn't really get me to the point where I could, like, actually climb hard again with all my injuries coming back. And I had, like, several different things going on with my shoulders. But so I I felt like I just got this intuition that, like, you know, I just needed to get my shoulders, like, stronger. And rehab wasn't cutting it. So I decided to 
hire a, a strength training coach and there was a strength gym on my walk to work because I had started like working at this point. Okay. Um, and is I would it, pass it. Is this a climbing person or, or totally unrelated? Just a strength totally, coach? totally unrelated. Like, yeah, yeah okay. just a strength coach. And I would walk past their gym like every day and like see in there and like see what they were doing. And I saw that they had like kettlebells and barbells and stuff like that. And I didn't really know how to do that stuff. I was like intrigued, but like, you know, worried that I wouldn't know how to do it. Um, and, you know, so I, I never messed with it, but I kept walking past it. And finally, one day I just went in there and I, I decided to like hire one of them to help me get stronger. And initially worked with one of the guys from that gym and then uh, switched over to another one of the coaches that was working there and <laughs> that person is still my coach today oh really yeah <laughs> that's awesome but yeah the rest is kind of history like I started getting stronger I started like feeling way stronger on the climbing wall like I could feel my climbing style changing hmm. and my shoulders just got better and better and better and I literally don't have those issues anymore with them um, I can do things that like I couldn't do before like I couldn't even lay on the floor with my hands behind my back and like watch my friends climb at the gym because that position would like hurt so bad. Oh, wow. Yeah. And, you know, none of that stuff is an issue now. So um, what, what kind, kind of, thing... of a game changer. Yeah, that's that's interesting. So obviously that led to what you do now. But I'm curious, what was it that your coach worked with you on at that time that, that you think made the difference for you with your shoulders in particular? Yeah, I mean, learning how to bench press and overhead press is like a big game changer for me hmm. um, because I personally did not have any athletic experience prior to climbing. Okay. So I just never trained my body before <laughs> other than through climbing. And um, climbing is a very specialized, a highly specialized sport. So it's important to be doing training that's like not just climbing. Um, and I, and I found that out pretty quickly. So learning at, learning how to do those things really helped and just kind of learning a little bit more about strength training and a little bit more about my body and my coach is like a really good teacher and, um, you know, really empowered me with like a lot of knowledge, which was really helpful. He didn't just tell me what to do, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and all of that was like very helpful and transformed like not only my, climbing but also like my body yeah. um, and the way that I climb and also like the way that I practice in my profession as well. Interesting. Cause yeah, you started down the path of chiropractic, right? Yeah. So I went to chiropractic school mainly because my dad used to go to a chiropractor who did like sports kind of medicine. Like he did chiropractic work and like physical therapy kind of stuff in his office. And my dad was always like a big athlete growing up. And I just saw how this chiropractor was able to help him so much with like his sports. Um, and I thought that was a pretty cool thing. So I decided to go to chiropractic school and then pretty quickly found out that that wasn't really the route that I wanted to take. Okay. Once I learned a little bit more about like chiropractic and the philosophy, but the, the great thing is, through a chiropractic license, I am able to practice physiotherapy, rehab. You know, clients don't have to have a prescription to come see me, so it allows mm. clients to access me very easily. So I have a lot of cool things I can do because of the license that I have. But oh, okay. currently, I'm not really practicing chiropractic, just rehab. 
Got it. I'm curious, how long did you continue down the path as you got stronger and felt your body changing and felt more empowered? How long did you think of yourself as a climber? Like, I guess, how long were you doing that with your main focus being how it would improve and help your climbing? And then at what point did it transition over into this new interest into powerlifting? Yeah, probably for a couple of years um, of doing it, like I did it for climbing and for climbing, like I, I always, I was lucky enough to have some coaches that were really great movement coaches growing up. Um, I started climbing when I was like 16 and so I had, I had really good technique, really good movement skills. Um, I also just naturally have pretty strong fingers. Okay. So I always felt that like for me, what was actually holding my climbing back was actual like physical strength. And mm. like I said, I never did any other athletic things really before. So I never really felt like a strong person. And, you know, people are always like, you climb V11, like you're so strong, like, you know, this and that. I'm like, ah, I don't know. I feel like I'm just like a good climber with strong fingers, you know, like I don't think I'm actually strong. Hmm. Um, and so that's kind of also why I wanted to pursue strength um is to get physically stronger because i knew it would help my climbing and my injuries so i did that probably for like two or three years before i got really hooked on powerlifting and the gains the the thing that i really like about strength training is that it's very measurable Mm -hmm. um and it's fun to get those beginner gains just like when you're first starting to climb right um and the nice thing about it is that like, you know, there's numbers that works really well for me. And I know that I can like create a training plan and set out to reach a goal and that I will get there. Like Mm. Hmm. I wanted to squat 300 pounds. We trained and I did it. Wow. Yeah. With climbing, it's not always that predictable. Like I could say, I want to climb V13. I'm going to do all this training and then I can go and not climb V13. Right. Yeah, so many other factors at play, and every climb is so unique in its needs. Totally. Yeah. Yeah, like maybe I didn't pick the right problem. Maybe the conditions weren't good that day. Maybe my training wasn't the right kind of training for that. Mm. So many things, uh, mental, all of that. But um, yeah, with with strength training, it's very predictable. So that's that's fun, and just being strong is fun. Like feeling strong <laughs> is fun. Like it's really fun. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I got kind of hooked on it, and. Um, it's kind of like badass too, and like seeing powerlifters competing at meets and trying really hard. Um, it just sounded really fun, so I decided to like gain even more weight and start becoming more competitive for powerlifting. And so I've probably been doing that like more seriously, competing probably for the last like three years or so. Okay. And haven't been, uh, you know, been climbing kind of off and on in that three years. Okay. I want to dig into an article that you wrote that I just recently read. So in my prep for this, I was looking at your website and I was kind of browsing through your blog and you've got a number of really great articles. One that stood out to me right away was called Myths and Truths About Strength Training for Climbers. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're a proponent of strength training and I know that an increasing number of climbers are kind of getting on board with it, but there's still climbing is still such a young sport that it's really easy to find countless examples of really good climbers that don't do any of it. 
And it's, yeah. it's just hard to know. It's hard to know. It's hard to know. Um, I think most people understand that, yeah, it does help, but how much is enough? How much is too much? You know, those things are, are kind of mm-hmm. difficult to unpack, but I really enjoyed the article and I thought we could hit on a few points from it. But the first one and something that you and I talked about pretty extensively on our, on the phone last week was gaining size from strength training. And you said something interesting. I think you said you're always trying to convince climbers to gain weight. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's a hard thing to grapple with for a lot of climbers because obviously our sport is a strength to weight ratio sport and people are kind of, I won't say like indoctrinated, but the word that's coming to mind right now that they need to be light in order to climb hard. And I'm sure that's true to some degree, obviously, especially if you're like an elite level climber or if you want to maximize your performance, but it's kind of a wrong thing to focus on right off the bat. Mm. And at least in my experience, like I tend to run into climbers who are also kind of like, I want to say lifestyle climbers, like that this is what they do and they've never done. This is like the first sport that kind of resonated with them. They don't have any real athletic training background. So they were kind of, kind of in the same boat as I, I was. Okay. And even if they're not, you know, like I said earlier, climbing is a highly specialized sport and only climbing at, at some point is going to be, it's not going to be the best thing for you. You have to train in other ways as well. And so for climbers, I think it's really important to understand that having more muscle mass strength training is only going to help you build a more solid foundation. It's only going to help your body feel more prepared and resilient for the things that we're doing with it climbing. And I think a lot of climbers are reluctant to gain weight because they've, you know, they haven't had the same experience as me or other people who have done this, but even if you are numbers wise heavier, if you are heavier because you've got muscle mass that's working for you, you're not going to feel heavier on the wall. Mm. Like even me at 35 pounds heavier, which is a pretty extreme example I don't feel heavy when I climb. Hmm. I haven't been climbing like three days a week for the last several years. So I'm a little bit out of shape for climbing, but I don't feel heavy when I climb. I feel strong. Mm-hmm. And I don't, I'm not saying anyone has to gain 35 pounds. Like uh, obviously I did that for powerlifting, but mm-hmm. you know, gaining like five or 10 pounds, maybe even 15 for some people um, is probably actually going to be really helpful, not only for their climbing performance, but also just for, their general health and like the health of their body and their joints and their feet and and all of that because muscle mass is protective. Hmm. And I think that's really hard for people to grasp because they're really scared that if they gain a little bit of weight, they're going to feel it in their climbing and they may have gained weight before and felt it in their climbing, but they probably didn't gain muscle mass. (laughs) (laughs) You know what I mean? And so, you know, if you're just eating like crap and you gain like fat or something like that, then, you're not going to feel strong when you're climbing, obviously, but that kind of weight gain is different. And that's not what I'm talking about. Mm-hmm. So I think a lot of climbers could benefit from it. And the nice thing is it's once you kind of understand how to go about gaining weight and how to go about losing weight, you know, it's, it's pretty, it's relatively easy to do. And 
I think it's really important for climbers to understand how to go about doing that because at least for me personally, you know, I definitely have suffered from disordered eating as a climber. Like I've been as small as 99 pounds and did not feel strong at 99 pounds. I'll tell you that much. Hmm. But yeah, I mean, it's a hard topic for a lot of people, but once I figured out, like once I learned about sort of like calorie balance and tracking macros and all of that, then it just made it this sort of like non-emotional, like mathematical thing that was very easy to control, like turning Hmm. a dial up and down. Um, And for me that made eating like that made me feel so much more relaxed about eating and Um, and food and all of that. And that's really what kind of allowed me to gain weight for powerlifting because I know if I wanted to, I could always lose that weight again Hmm. um, and be whatever weight I want to be. So I am, and I think a lot of people don't understand how to reliably gain or lose weight. And so that's really scary for people. Yeah. So I think understanding a little bit about nutrition can be really helpful for, for climbers. Um, I know that's not your area of expertise, but I'd love to dig into that if you're willing. I'd love mm-hmm. to maybe just hear, like, what are some of the the kind of, like, big points that you communicate to your clients to help them with this stuff? Like, what are some of, like, the major bullet points that people can take away? Yeah, definitely. So number one, like, <laughs> I think it's really important. Like this is not a nutritional thing, but like, I think first thing we need to say is that you should probably have seasons in your climbing seasons, seasons. So you should have an, you should have a performance season. You should have off seasons and Hmm. off seasons are times where you want to go back and work on foundational strength. You maybe want to get a little, gain a little bit of muscle mass, um, and train a little bit heavier. And then when you have a performance season, like maybe in the fall for bouldering, that's when you can work on losing a little bit of weight, um, dialing back the strength training and ramping up for climbing performance. And I know that's really hard for people because especially in places like where I live in California, you can basically climb all year round. Mm-hmm. People just want to climb all the time. They want to perform all the time and it's just not sustainable. And that's not how athletes train. Uh, right. And I think right. we're starting, <laughs> we're starting to get some really good examples of that. Um, the first example that comes to mind is Matt Foltz. Um, he does this. He gains weight in his off season. He focuses on strength training. And then he, when he wants to perform, he dials it back, loses the weight and performs. And he climbs like V16. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's pretty cool. I think he's a good example for the climbing community of like what an athlete should be doing. So that's that's totally. number one. Yeah, you you pointed me towards an interview that he just did on the power company a, a while ago, and I listened to it. And yeah, he fluctuates like seven to eight pounds mm-hmm. between his kind of eating a little bit more strength training mode versus peaking performance, like fighting weight. And mm-hmm. and I thought that was really interesting as just kind of a an example. And he also did say like he keeps climbing during his you know quote off season, but it's just yeah. like peak performance isn't the priority. And I think something as simple as having that subtle mental shift and giving yourself a little bit of a break and not being hell bent on sending the hardest thing you've ever done every weekend. is uh, mm-hmm. yeah, that goes a long way. Yeah. It's yeah. It's really important. I mean, climbing is a skill sport, so no one is saying to like not climb during your off season. It's just not the emphasis, you know, but you still need to be practicing the skill. That's really important. 
And I think just having a little bit more patience with your climbing and your training. And that's something I really didn't learn until I started strength training. And I could see like the bigger picture of how training actually works. Hmm. Um, Like I remember like getting ready for competitions and being like, cool, competitions in like two weeks, we'll train. Like, what are you going to do in two weeks? (laughs) But like, I really thought that we were doing something, you know? Right. And so I think uh, learning a little bit more about training has really helped me open up to like the bigger picture of training and having seasons as part of that. It's really hard for people to do because they don't want to let go of that, you know? Right, totally. And I think people get confused. I certainly fell into this group. Like you can train really hard for two weeks or three weeks or six weeks and see benefit from that and get tricked into thinking that it is working. But you're, you're really just right. kind of tuning up. Like you're not right. building anything new or building anything, building a bigger foundation than you had. You're just kind of like fine tuning, you know, what's already there a little bit. Right, exactly. And so it's easy to get kind of fooled by the that, you know, that little increase in performance that you get from like a little bit of training. Hmm. For sure. So that that's the first thing I would say um, okay. is like deciding when your seasons are going to be. And it's probably going to depend on what kind of climbing you do. Like sport climbing season may be a little different than bouldering season, maybe a little different than trad climbing or whatever. But yeah, deciding when your seasons are going to be or focusing your climbing year around certain climbing trips that you might have, you know, like I know a lot of people, a lot of my friends go to South Africa in the summer. And so a lot of their training programs revolve around that trip. Hmm. Um, so, you know, that could be their on season and then they could schedule an off season. Um, so that's, that's number one, that's important. Um, and then that's when you would be wanting to gain weight is during your off season, because you can build muscle, which is essentially armor for your body and build up a little bit more tissue resiliency and focus a little bit more on that kind of thing during your off season. And the number one thing that I, I would want people to take away from from this podcast is probably that it's impossible to gain weight without a caloric surplus. Mm. You cannot gain weight unless you are eating more than you currently do. Mm -hmm. And that's just a fact. That's just thermodynamics. And so when people say like, Oh, I'm afraid of gaining weight. A lot of times when I start working with a client, they end up losing weight. Hmm. Because they keep their training, they keep their eating the same. They start strength training, which is more than what they were doing with just climbing, and they actually end up losing weight. Interesting, yeah. Which is not necessarily the goal most of the time. <laughs> um, so I end up having to convince people to eat more just huh. to maintain their body weight okay. when they first start strength training. So you know, you really have to be eating a caloric surplus to gain weight. That's the only way that it's going to happen. It's not what you're eating. It's not you know, anything else other than you are eating a caloric surplus. So if you understand that, then it's a little bit easier to like wrap your head around, you know, the whole gaining weight thing. And there's definitely people who put on weight a little easier than others, mm-hmm. for sure. Some of that's like genetic. Um, it's less common than people think, but it is something that happens to some people. But that's still not going to happen without a caloric surplus. Just hmm. because you're an easy gainer doesn't mean like you can't be on an isocaloric diet, which means you're keeping your calories the same and gaining weight right? just from strength training. Like that's not going to happen. So that's really important to understand. Like if, you, if you're gaining weight, you're eating more than you should. 
So if you're worried about that, you need to start keeping track of that. Hmm. Um, and it's really tedious, but I mean, it can seem really tedious for some people, but I think it's actually like a really good thing for climbers to learn how to do because for me personally, like I didn't understand, understand how that worked really until I started tracking, tracking what they're eating, tracking what I was eating yeah. and seeing where my calories were and seeing like what macros I was eating. So macros are just your fat your proteins and your carbohydrates that you're eating in your diet. And I was vegan for eight years. Um, and only recently, well, recently in the last, I would guess, I would say like the last five years have started like eating meat again. Okay. And part of that is because it's just so much easier to get enough protein through meat. Uh, and I'm not saying you can't do it as a vegan because you definitely can, but if you start tracking your macros, then usually you have to get a set amount of proteins, like a certain amount of grams of protein, certain amount of grams of fat, and a certain amount of grams of carbohydrate to stay within your calorie range. Mm -hmm. And when I started tracking that as a vegan, I was significant. I was getting significantly less protein than I thought I was. Interesting. And I was eating way more fat and way more carbohydrate than I thought I was. And like okay. in my head, I was like, no, I've got this dialed. Like I understand nutrition. Like I know I need to get protein. I'm making a concerted effort to eat protein as a vegan, but I wasn't actually tracking it. So on a good day, I was getting 60 grams of protein. Wow. Yeah. Which is not enough for an athlete. Like it's enough to stay alive, but it's not enough for an athlete. And so, like, I think it's really important for people to start tracking that stuff. And, like, the analogy I gave you when we talked earlier and that I give to a lot of my clients is, like, imagine you want to, like, save, you want to budget for, like, a trip or to buy a house or anything like that, something you have to really budget for. You can't really create a budget. You can't really get to that goal if you don't understand, like, how much money you make, what your <laughs> bills are. Like, you have to look at your bank account. You have to know how much money you're making. You have to know where your money is going if you want to create a budget. Mm -hmm. You can't just, like, go by feel, you know? Like, yeah. that doesn't work. <laughs> yeah. Like, a financial advisor is not going to be like, yeah, just, like, you know, whatever you feel like you can save. And so nutrition is the same. Like, you have to create a budget. You have to start tracking it to know where you're at and then go from there. And a lot of people don't realize that. Like, I've had a lot of clients who say, like, yeah, 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 I'm, I'm getting enough protein. I'm getting enough protein. Well, how much protein are you getting? Um, well, I'm just kind of estimating, but like probably 20 grams per meal. Mm -hmm. Okay. Like you're estimating, but 20 grams, let's just say how many meals a day are you eating? Like three. Okay. That's 60 grams of protein. Mm -hmm. You're a 165 pound man. That's not enough protein. Like, so you have to kind of connect the dots for people sometimes. Cause they don't really get it. Yeah. Yeah. But that's all important stuff to understand, especially as athletes. Like, so number one, like you know, calorie balance is important because that's going to dictate whether or not you're gaining or losing weight. And then within that, the second thing that's most important is your uh, macronutrient ratios. Mm. I want to get into some of your recommendations for that in a second, but I have a couple questions first. Mm -hmm. First off, if someone is on a vegan or vegetarian diet, do you have recommendations for them for supplements or anything like that to, to help them get the protein numbers up? Yeah, I mean, for it's definitely possible to get it through diet. Okay. Um, the reason that I was having a hard time doing it was 
because in order to get the amount of protein that I needed from just food, I would have to also get like a ton of carbs and fat um, along with it, which was going to make me go over my calorie my calorie budget basically gotcha. um, <clears throat> because a lot of like vegan and um, a lot of vegan foods are definitely like high in fat and carbs. So okay. it's not impossible, but for someone who was as small as me with the calorie range that I was trying, the calorie budget that I had, it was very challenging mm. to get the protein that I needed, which um, I know you said we're going to go into that, but like for me, I was aiming for one gram of protein per pound body weight. And so it was just really hard to get that. That's um, been a really consistent theme in the podcast so far. That's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's like what a lot of the research shows. Okay, um, one gram per pound per day. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. Is um, that based on, r- real quickly, so one gram of protein per pound of, is that total body weight or lean mass or how do you Per pound body that? weight. Okay. Yeah, per pound body weight is the way to think of it. Gotcha. Um, it's been studied as high as two grams. Yeah. But the general recommendation is somewhere between 0.8 and 1 gram. Okay. Um, and if you want to optimize, like, you know, one, 1 gram is a good place to aim for because even if you're a little short of that, then you're still going to be within a good range for an athlete. So I'm 145 pounds, so aiming for around 145 grams of protein. Um, does does so that for change? Vegans, does that change on rest days versus climbing days? No. Okay. Mm-hmm. Or training days? Some people will do that, but, um, you know, actually your, your protein would need to be higher on a rest day because that's when you're recovering and rebuilding. So. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah. So you could do that. Like some people will carb cycle, meaning they have like higher carbs on training days, lower carbs on non-training days. But generally that means on their training days, it's going to be a little higher carb, a little bit lower protein and a little bit lower fat. And then on non-training days, it's going to be higher protein, lower carb and a little bit higher fat. Okay. And are you in that sort of scenario, or I guess as far as what you recommend for your clients, are you keeping calories even across rest and training days or are you bumping it up on training days? Yeah, I'm keeping it even. Like it's just oh, easier for people to do that. Okay. Um, I mean, you can carb cycle for sure. It's just more complicated and like just getting people to track first of all is like, complicated <laughs> enough. Yeah. So yeah. I try not to like get it, get too complicated with it. Um, sure. And, you know, I mean, the difference is probably negligible. Okay. Um, you're still staying within your calorie range when you do that. So let's, uh, let's just roll with this. What, um, what is your carbohydrate recommendation for climbers? And uh, maybe is there, yeah, I guess for climbers that you work with, and then I'm curious if there's any differences between what you recommend for boulders, sport climbers, alpine climbers, et cetera. Yeah. So, I mean, just so everybody knows, this is definitely not my area of expertise. Like I'm not a nutritionist, but okay. because of what I do for a living, I do have to know this stuff. So. Yeah. Okay. I'm sure you've also seen like what works for people too. I mean, you've just worked yeah, with a lot of totally. people. Totally. Um, and I'm familiar with like the science of, of a lot of this stuff too. So the general recommendation, I'll just go through all of them. So for protein is going to be like 0.8 to 1 gram of protein per pound body weight. And then for fat, or sorry, for carbohydrate, it's going to be somewhere between like one to two and a half grams of carbohydrate per pound body weight. Okay. That's going to depend on your activity level. So if you're just a boulderer, probably okay to be on the lower end of that. Okay. If you're a sport climber, um, probably somewhere in the middle. Um, If you're like a trad or alpine climber, you're probably going to need significantly more. So more like two and a half 
grams or maybe even three, depending on like your day. Oh, wow. Okay. Just because you're expending so much more and carbohydrates are what literally fuel your training sessions. And so if you're not getting enough carbohydrate before and during your training or your, you know, when you're up in the mountains doing your thing, um, then your performance is going to be compromised. But if you're just a boulder, especially if you're someone who maybe works at a computer, doesn't, isn't really that active throughout the day, and people tend to overestimate their activity levels too, mm-hmm. um, <laughs> yeah. then <laughs> being on the lower end is fine. Like I'm a power lifter. I train hard during my sessions. My sessions are sometimes three hours long, but I'm still only getting in that one gram of carbohydrate per pound body weight because the rest of the day I'm literally sitting at my computer or like not moving very much. Interesting. So. Okay. Good to know. Yeah. Um, so if you're really active, maybe on the higher end of that. But And then the rest of that can be fat. So the general recommendation is like 0.3 grams of fat per pound body weight. Um, but depending on like where your – what your calorie budget is, you could just fill up the rest of your macros with fat. Oh, okay. Some people will do. Got it. Um, so that, those are general recommendations. Cool. Thanks for that. Yeah, but everybody's um, going to be different. So, like, I usually recommend that people track for, like, a week or two and just see what their body weight does. Yeah. And then we can make, you know, make changes from there. Do you have an app that you recommend for that, for tracking? Yeah, the one that I like to use is called My Macros Plus. Okay. That one you have to pay for. Um, there's also My Fitness Pal, which okay. is free. I think My Macros Plus is free, but there's some things you have to maybe pay for. I forget now. Um, It was like a premium or something. Yeah. Okay. Both of them have like, quote unquote, nutrition coaches that you can pay for. They're not actually coaches. It's just like the app will do some math for you depending on what your weight is doing and like auto adjust your macros for you. So you can pay for that if you want. Mm -hmm. I don't really like the ratios they use on those apps, like the general ratios, because it's usually like a little bit less protein than I would recommend and a little more fat or carbs. Um, But it's probably a fine place to start. Okay. Um, But those apps are great. They make it really easy to track. There's literally millions of foods already in the database. Mm, mm -hmm. Um, Usually you can scan barcodes and stuff. Exactly. I can take my phone and like scan the barcode of something that I'm eating. And then it'll put in like a serving of that. Or you can adjust the serving size and put what you're eating. So it makes it really, really easy to track. The hardest thing is just getting in the habit of doing that every day. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. (laughs) (laughs) i'd love to ask like what are some of the what are some of your clients discovering when they start tracking these things and what are some of the changes that you've seen happen when you get them on like what you're recommending as far as these macros and and that sort of thing i would definitely say that most of the time my clients are under eating protein okay most of the time and then depending on the athlete like some people are over eating carbs and some people are way under eating carbs, actually. Interesting. It depends on, I think, what kind of nutrition advice they've been exposed to because a lot of people are, uh, you know, they avoid certain foods or they've been told to do the keto diet or they've been told carbs are bad or, you know, things like that. So, like, some of my athletes are, like, way under eating carbs for the stuff that they do. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, but it's, I would say, go ahead. I was just gonna say, I would say almost everyone is under eating protein, though. Okay. I haven't talked much about my history with my diet and eating 
on, on the podcast. And I actually do plan to at some point, like giving people my story, but yeah. I have played around with low carb diets quite a lot at this point. And mm-hmm. I found that I think I've gotten that to work pretty well when I was just strength training and bouldering, interestingly, but I have not been able to get it to work very well with sport climbing. And I tried a lot of different things. And I'm really interested in this because I think I I was likely one of those people that was under eating carbs for quite a long time. And I'm mm, kind of just recently experimenting with uh, with bumping that up a little bit. And it's it's kind of right in that zone that you're talking about. So it'll be interesting to see how that goes. Yeah, you should definitely talk about that. Um, just from what you've told me uh, previously, like, I think it'd be interesting for people to hear yeah. your experience with all of this. I'm, I'm curious, like, what you mean when you say work. Like, I've got it to work for me. What does that mean? <laughs> in terms uh, of, like, losing weight, in terms mm. of, like, how you feel when you're performing. Like, what do you mean by that? Yeah, I, I guess I'm hesitant to dive into my whole story, and it's it's hard to kind of pick and choose parts of it without the context that'll make sense. Yeah. But, um, but I guess I've, I've felt strong and I've felt like I perform well bouldering and have been able to get to like a good body composition on low carb diets. But mm-hmm. I, I had an interesting experience. I was actually on the ketogenic diet for quite a while. Mm-hmm. And, um, the whole time I was doing that, I just kind of felt like I was missing middle gears. I, I've talked about this with a buddy of mine, and I described that, like, you know, your first gear in your car is really powerful. Mm-hmm. I kind of felt like my my short bouldering, like, you know, three to four moves or, like, lifting heavy or that sort of thing, I actually felt pretty good. And then mm-hmm. I also felt like I could kind of go all day or climb, like, really long enduro routes without getting pumped. But mm-hmm. I had, like, nothing in between. It was really, really weird. Like anything glycolytic at all, I just had like no energy and I would just kind of, I would try to climb like a power endurance sport route and just kind of melt off. Like I wouldn't feel pumped. I would just like power out and just melt off the wall. Yeah. And I also felt that I kind of lost the ability to build power endurance. Like I would be working on a project and I just wouldn't get any better at it. <laughs> you know how like normally you, you try a, a sport route and you just kind of like magically can make longer links than the last session and you yeah. can like magically like get to a higher high point and that sort of thing. That just yeah. like wasn't working. It was really, really weird. Interesting. Were you tracking your carbs at the time or were you kind of just avoiding carbs kind of thing? Uh, I, I've kind of done both. I had a long period where I was tracking really diligently and I was definitely in that ketogenic range. Um, oh. Then I had a, a long period after that where I was, I was still... I wasn't ketogenic anymore. I was eating more carbs, but probably still pretty low, probably less than 100 grams per day most days. And that would be like total, not net. Yeah. Were you, um, so you were under 45 grams when you were ketogenic? Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, that kind of tracks too, because like you, you can get away with like, you know, it's shorter bursts with bouldering and then with sport climbing and other things, like if you're not eating enough carbs or like that middle range, like... You, you know, just need you glycogen forever. Like, you need those <laughs> carbs, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's not It's funny, too, because it's like you can find really, really compelling research about this stuff. Kind of like no matter what it is that, you, that you're trying, like there's some really compelling arguments out there. And I don't think that they're wrong. You know, I just think like it can be really complicated to figure out how to put all this stuff together and 
-hmm. And I realized at least for myself and at least with this sport that I want to do, you know, my, my needs are maybe just pretty different from a lot of the people whose anecdotes I was reading and that sort of thing. But it can be yeah. really these these ideas can be really seductive and it can be really challenging to figure out what works for you. I mean, I've been working on figuring that out for like three or four years. Yeah, <laughs> still totally. trying to figure and out it, how to eat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's pretty it's a nuanced thing for sure, especially when you're looking at the research where like maybe the people who are researched on don't have the same sporting background as you or they're studying mm. a different sport or, you know, so many different things. So it can be hard, like even when you're looking at research, compelling research, you know, that wasn't done on a boulder. <laughs> right. <laughs> oh, it wasn't done on you. Um, yeah, yeah. Yeah, but yeah, and it's also, you know, an emotional issue for a lot of people. Food, right. You know? Pe- people don't want to be told what they should eat. And, you know, I don't I don't think they should be told what to eat. But there's I'm sure a lot some... of people are really triggered by this conversation, actually. it it's, Oh, yeah. It's really interesting. Food can almost trigger people the way that like having a religious debate can or something like that. Totally. Yeah. yeah it's really yeah. powerful. It's almost like political, but yeah, I mean, that's why I'm like a big fan of like middle ground, you know? And so like the cool thing about tracking macros is you can eat whatever the fuck you want. You just have to make <laughs> it fit within your macros, you know, like you can have cake for breakfast if you really want to eat it, but you know, then that's taking some of your carbs and fat for the day and you're going to have to have chicken breast and asparagus. For <laughs> And like, honestly, that makes me happy. If I want to eat cake for breakfast, I'm going to do it. Um, And you can make it fit. That's the cool part, you know? Mm. Um, But the caveat is like, you know, I think it's valuable for climbers to understand how calorie balance works and how macros works. I think it can be really empowering. I think it can help people really relax about gaining weight. Mm. Um, But the caveat is like this does get a little like this can get a little disordery for some people yeah totally like i know people who are just kind of have disordered eating tendencies can get really intense with like their macros and their Hmm. like tracking all of this stuff can be really triggering to people and so it's not for everybody and you know i've worked with climbers who have tracked before and they have disordered eating patterns and it is triggering for them so you know being a little more relaxed about it for those people is kind of better. But, you know, I do think it's it's something worth experimenting with for people and learning about because it literally is just math. Like, and if you want to control your body composition, it's the easiest way to do it. And that's this is literally what bodybuilders do. And bodybuilders are all about controlling their body composition, gaining muscle mass, getting leaner. Like if you want to do that really well, you have to look at the people who are doing that very well for a sport. And this is what they do. They Mm. track their macros. Yeah. And a a group that might resonate more with climbers is like fitness competitors, you know, people Mm -hmm. that do a similar thing to bodybuilders, but they're not trying to get huge. They're just trying to get that like Brad Pitt fight club kind of super lean muscular look. (laughs) Yeah. It's a good descriptor. (laughs) Yeah. But they do really similar stuff and, and yeah, yeah, they're pros at it. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it just makes sense. But, you know, like I said, not not for everybody and for some people it can be triggering. So I'll 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 say that caveat for sure. <laughs> okay. A couple of quick questions. Uh, back to the carb thing. Uh, when you were talking about those carbohydrate numbers, is that total or is that net carbs? Total. Okay. So that's including fiber for people that are curious about the distinction there. Mm-hmm. Okay. And you want to get around twenty five grams of fiber. 
Okay. Is the general recommendation too, because it's really easy to just like not eat vegetables, and, <laughs> you know, eat gummy bears to uh-huh. fill your carbs, but yeah, you want some fiber. <laughs> um, a question about protein: Have you seen when your clients come in and you said that almost everybody's under eating protein? What kind of uh, feedback are you hearing when people jump on board and start ramping up to like one gram per pound per day? I feel like people say that they are re- just recovering better. They just feel better. Um, They're able to gain muscle in the way that they want to. Like a lot of people are like, I just have a hard time gaining muscle. I can't do it. A lot of times they're not eating enough. um, They're not eating enough protein. Okay. So just eating enough protein can be really helpful for that. But probably the thing that people say helps the most, because protein, it's like, you know, it's not going to be, most of the time, it's not going to be like a night and day thing. Like, oh, suddenly I'm getting enough protein and it's like, damn, I feel like a different athlete. Uh That's going to be more of a gradual thing probably. Um, And it was for me too. But the thing that really helps people um, is the climbers who are under eating carbohydrate or not timing their carbohydrate appropriately notice huge differences in their performance and their energy levels during a climbing session. Interesting. Like I had a climber who was like, yeah, I'm just like really pooping out in my strength training sessions. Like we talked about what he was eating. Like he's eating, he seems like he's eating enough calories. Like what's going on. And then I would be like, okay, like walk me through your day. Like what are you eating before your climbing session? And he would be like, okay, so you know, for breakfast, I'll have some eggs and some avocado. And then for lunch, I'll have some hard boiled eggs and a salad with no dressing on it. So when you look at that, okay, he's having like eggs, good protein, fat. Um, He's having like a salad, fiber, a little bit of carb, not much at all. He's not putting any dressing on it. So right before his climbing set or his training session, he's having hard boiled eggs and salad with no dressing. There's pretty much no carbs in that, mm-hmm. like none. So he's going into his day, like already not having any carbohydrates. And then he's going into his training session without having any carbs at all. And then wondering why he's like pooping out halfway through his training sessions. Hmm. So got him to start eating like um, bananas and dates. Um, and I think he also tried like, um, you know, the builder's bars, which most of the protein bars are actually going to have like a decent amount of carbs in them as well. Yeah. Even though they're protein bars. And he like, it was like night and day difference for him. Interesting. Energy wise going into his sessions, because now he's providing his body with carbohydrates that his body needs during the workouts um, to, to fuel his workout sessions. And I had another climber who was doing the same. She climbs out in Colorado. She hikes up you know, to Rocky Mountain National Park to go climbing. Um, And she wasn't having any carbohydrates, like leading up to the hour hike or 45 minute hike or whatever it takes to get to the boulders you're going to up there at elevation. And then she was climbing all day without eating anything. Hmm. And so I was like, let's try something. Why don't you bring some gummy bears? (laughs) Let's have those gummy bears. Like, let's have a little bit of carb before you hike up. Let's have some toast and banana with your breakfast. And then let's have some gummy bears, like, during your climbing session. Um, And it was, like, night and day. Wow. (laughs) So, like, the night and day, like, the big changes are, like, just the energy that people have if they time their carbs correctly. Hmm. 
because you know you're if you're going to go to bed you don't need a whole bunch of carbs necessarily like right before you go to bed you're going to sleep you're not moving around you know right but you do need those carbohydrates like right before your training or during your training sessions because that's what's fueling your sessions um that's what your body prefers for fuel so like just changing that around is like where I've noticed more of the differences for people Um, with the protein thing. Like people do feel like they're recovering better, but that's more of like a long-term gradual thing that people are noticing. Okay. I've heard you talk a lot about recovery and how important recovery is and, and how much you focus on it with your clients. You think it's like one of the most undervalued facets of training that, that gets neglected. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think you've broken that down into three parts. I've heard you talk about sleep and stress and eating. And I'm curious with your, with the like fits your macros thing, are there any foods that you think are still worth avoiding as far as recovery goes? Anything that like hampers recovery or that's just not worth it? Or how do you think about that? I don't think so. I mean, interesting. Okay. I don't think there's anything that's going to like, I mean, obviously alcohol, <laughs> Okay. like probably avoiding like large quantities of alcohol. Um, I think that's going to definitely interfere with recovery and that can interfere with sleep, which is also going to interfere with your recovery. But other than that, like, you know, whatever people want to eat, they can eat it. Like, let's just stay within our, our calorie budget. If our goal is to like optimize body composition. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of have a problem with labeling things as bad, bad and good because it's <laughs> okay. a little bit more nuanced than that. Um, and it's going to depend on a lot of things, too. So other than alcohol, which I don't think having like a beer after a climbing session is necessarily a bad thing. I'm talking about like having like several drinks, um, like going to the bar after your training session kind of thing. Like that's probably not good. Okay. Um, but other than that, I don't tell people to really like avoid anything. Hmm. Okay. Do you want to get into more of the recovery stuff? Yeah. I mean, we've been talking for a little while now. We've talked a lot about nutrition, which isn't it? <laughs> I know. I know. Well, I, it is It is fascinating. Actually, I guess, I guess the reason that it's so interesting to me is because it is so counter to such a deeply entrenched culture in climbing. And, yeah. you know, your story is just so interesting to me that you're 35 pounds heavier than you were when you were a pro climber and that you still feel roughly the same on the wall. And that's without consistent or focused climbing training these days. Um, I guess I am curious, do you think there's a point of diminishing returns with that? Like if you were just focused on peak performance climbing right now, do you have a sense of what your fighting weight would be or, or what you would target for that? Yeah. I mean, I definitely wouldn't be the weight that I am now because it's probably not like super optimal for climbing. Although like I will say I have been able to go outdoors and climb v8 off the couch and i've been able to go to the gym and climb v7 i flashed v7 at the climbing gym just off the couch (laughs) at this body weight um which arguably is not that strong for me i guess if you want to say like well you used to be a v11 climber so that actually sucks but given the fact that i've done pretty much no training for climbing in the past three years like i can probably count on two hands how many times i've climbed in the last three years oh wow um you know, the fact that my body weight is optimized for powerlifting and not climbing, like, I think that's pretty damn good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, But anyway, I probably wouldn't weigh this much if I was trying to optimize for climbing, but I I could not see myself ever weighing less than 130 pounds ever again. 
Interesting. Um, I think I would feel unhealthy. I think my performance would suffer. I think I would risk losing muscle mass that I would like to keep. And just so people have like a reference, um, I'm five foot two. And when I was winning climbing competitions and climbing at my best, I was probably somewhere around 112, 115 pounds. Okay. Yeah, I don't, I really can't see myself weighing less than 130, like maybe 125, but that would really be pushing it. And I would have to try pretty hard to get down Hmm. to that. And I would probably uh, risk losing some muscle mass to get that small again. Okay. So, yeah, I I would guess somewhere around like 130. I'm 145 right now, just for reference. And I've been as heavy as 162 pounds. So, yeah. Gotcha. That reminds me of one question I did want to ask earlier when we were talking about having seasons and, Mm -hmm. you know, changing our focus from performance rock climbing to more of a strength focus and kind of this bulking and cutting thing that Matt Foltz is doing. How do you think about that as far as like how many times a year would you recommend your clients do that? Is that like you take one off season a year? Do you do like a summer and winter, two off seasons? How do you think about that? Yeah, I would say like one to two. Okay. One to two. Um, Two would probably be like the smarter way to go because it is hard to kind of like keep up peak performance for a really long time and so eventually you're probably going to start feeling like not as well trained the longer you try to keep yourself in your quote-unquote season Mm -hmm. so i think two times a year is like probably the best okay and one is probably like a minimum you know and one might not even be enough for people to kind of get where they could be in terms of well, depending on how much training that they've had in the past, like if I if I had come into strength training as a climber and had only spent three months building strength, like I wouldn't be anywhere. Really. <laughs> <laughs> uh, like I, that would ha- I would have had to spend multiple years returning back to that like three months a twelve week off season and building, and it would have taken way longer to get to where I am now. So mm. I think having a couple of off seasons a year is probably going to get you there a little bit faster and help you build a better base, especially if you have no previous training experience um, and you need, you need to build that base a little bit more. Okay. I think a common misconception that people have when they hear people like you talk about strength training for climbing is they think you're advocating for a lot of it, you know, especially when you talk about off seasons and stuff. And it was interesting to talk on the phone with you and hear that you really don't have people do that much, even in a a focused part of their year. Can you talk about that? Like how many times a week are you having people strength train and, and what does that kind of look like? Yeah, definitely. I think that's a good thing to talk about because I think people do have sort of like a misconception that I or other people are advocating for climbers to turn into power lifters. And that's like absolutely not what we're saying, <laughs> not what I'm saying. Um, so, yeah, for climbing, like, well, number one, like a lot of people have not done a very decent amount of strength training or they don't have a history of other training besides climbing some people do but um, a lot of people don't so the minimum effective dose for people who are undertrained, who are basically novices in the strength realm is going to be pretty small like you don't need to do much to get a ton out of it 
Um, and I've had people do as little as one time a week okay. and get, get a lot of benefit. Um, my general recommendation is going to be like two times a week. And maybe if someone's really focused in their off season on building strength, three times a week at the most, but generally like on average, it's going to be two times a week and we're going to be doing some kind of squat, some kind of, uh, bench press or overhead press and some kind of deadlift or row or pulling variation. Okay. Two times a week for each of those and somewhere between like three and five sets. Generally, um, I'm usually trying to keep that, pretty low volume for people because like I said, the minimum effective dose is like very small for most people. Hmm. Um, they don't have to do a lot to get a ton out of strength training, at least if they're not experienced with it. Okay. So like three sets for some people is plenty and I want to keep the intensity high and the, the volume relatively low for someone who's new to strength training. So like I'm usually having people do something like, sets of like three to six reps, like maybe eight or 10, if it's something like a row or an upper body accessory movement. But yeah, generally like fairly low rep, high intensity for most people. Okay. And I I think it's really important for people to understand like also where that strength is coming from. What do you mean by that? Well, especially when you're new, a lot of the strength gains that you're getting, and this is why you can train for two weeks and like feel like you're stronger. A lot of like the strength gains initially is, is neurological. Okay. So you're getting stronger because you are training your muscle fibers to be more efficient. You're recruiting more muscle fibers at once. And it's not because you're like growing muscle or Anything like that, it's literally just like a neurological thing that's Like happening. you're teaching your brain how to speak to your muscles more effectively and efficiently, kind of? Exactly. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> exactly. And because if you've never had any experience with strength training before, like there is some skill, like strength is a little bit of a skill. So like learning how to do squats, learning how to do bench press, overhead press, it's a skill. And you get better at that skill the more you practice it. So you may just be getting better because you're becoming more efficient at those movements too. Mm. So, yeah, a lot of times it's not because you're actually, like, getting more muscle. And I've seen that with some of my athletes. Like, I've had athletes say, like, man, I'm feeling, like, large. Like, I'm filling out my shirts differently. My pants are fitting differently. Um, I think I'm, I'm getting bigger. And when they actually weigh themselves, they, they literally weigh the same. Hmm. they're just like their body's recomping because of the training that they're doing. So they might have more muscle and they're just getting a little bit leaner. So it feels like they're bigger, but they're, they're not actually physically bigger. Interesting. Like weight wise. Yeah. And I've seen that happen a lot. So it sounds like I actually listened to a podcast that you did with Neely Quinn some years ago on training beta Mm -hmm. and you you recommended like the four primary lifts for climbers. And I think you just covered all of them just now. And what you're talking mm-hmm. about, like a, I think it was like a low bar back squat, overhead press, bench press and deadlift. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting that you advocate for those big compound movements. And it, it sounds like you don't really do much of the accessory stuff or like eyes, Y's and T's, you know, some, some of the things that are for smaller muscle groups and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. Can you speak to why you think, the big compound movements kind of cover the bases with that sort of stuff? 
Yeah, I mean, they're just better bang for your buck exercises. So okay. um, the compound movements are going to kind of train everything. So like we can take the shoulder as an example. Like a lot of people are like, I got to do my eyes, Y's and T's. I got to do my lateral raises and my rotator cuff bandy thing. Got to make sure I'm hitting all the stabilizers. But what they don't realize is like if you're benching heavy enough, you're hitting all of those muscles with that bench press movement hmm. and, along with, you know, chest you know, um, delts, uh, triceps, biceps, a bunch of other things on top of it. So instead of doing like six different exercises to target these areas, we're doing one that we can load very heavy and we can get the strength adaptations we want from it as well as the tissue adaptations that we want from it. Hmm. And we're utilizing the most effective range of motion. So we're not, you know, doing a huge range of motion, but we're not doing like small range of motion either. Mm-hmm. They're just going to be more effective. And there are times where I will use some accessories for people. Those situations are going to be people who need more training volume to get the adaptations that we're looking for. So people who are a little more trained or in situations where I'm working with someone in a rehab capacity and we want to, like, if they have, like, a tendon issue, Mm. I want to make sure that we're specifically targeting the muscle that that tendon is attached to. And so I will add accessory work for that. Okay. But for a lot of people, because they're beginners and because we're working on building a base, these compound lifts are going to give them the biggest bang for their buck. It's not going to require as much time as doing a whole bunch of different smaller exercises. We can load them much heavier. Therefore, they're like much more effective. Okay. And I also don't want people to get the wrong idea either. Like I'm not saying that like these are the only things I do with people because we also will get into more climbing specific exercises as well because strength is specific. And so when I'm talking about these compound strength training movements, I'm talking about building a general athletic foundation, Mm. a general strength foundation, which you need for any other kinds of qualities that you want to work on. So, you know, if you want to work on campusing more powerfully, we got to make sure you have that strength base, you know? But that's not to say I'm not having people campus or I'm not having people do certain isometric exercises or I'm not having people do other things that are more joint specific and climbing specific. Like I do that stuff, but my concern is making sure that people have this foundation to build off of. Because Mm. if we don't start there, then you don't have these general athletic qualities that we need for you to build on top of that for the more sports specific stuff. Mm. And a lot of people don't realize like climbing is training like uh-huh. some of that stuff you you're doing when you're climbing so sometimes people are like i gotta work on my contact strength i gotta do the campus board i gotta like guess what you're that's happening when you're climbing like when you're doing a move where you have to latch a hold quickly you're doing that mm-hmm. so a yeah. lot of the more sport specific strength stuff is being covered with the climbing training practice okay and if there's something we want to work on more specifically like say you want to work on your contact strength. Um, you want to work on that total body tension and your ability to latch a hold. We can c- create drills or things you can do in your climbing session that will help you work on that. And so well, well, I do think it's really, really good to work on like these specific strength things for climbing. Climbing is going to be the most specific thing we can do for climbing. Mm. So. Cool. Yeah. Okay. I thought of something just now. I know a lot of climbers out there and, and certainly some people that I've talked to, they're kind of wary of high intensity training or, or going heavy, low rep training. 
with compound movements, with bench press, things like that, because they're afraid of wearing themselves out, like wearing out their wearing out their joints, you know, they won't deadlift mm-hmm. because they're afraid of hurting their back or because they already have back pain, things like that. Mm-hmm. And you and I were talking on the phone the other day and you had a great analogy where you compared the human body to a car. Do you remember that? Yeah. <laughs> okay. can, you, can you talk about that? I really loved that. I thought that was a great visual. Yeah. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, we're not machines, you know, the human body, the difference between like a machine that wears out with use and a human body is that a machine can't adapt, but a human body can. So it makes sense that like the tires on your car can wear out and go bald, you know, or over time your alignment in your car gets off and needs to be adjusted or whatever. Your brake pads need to be replaced. That doesn't happen in the human body. Like our bodies actually get better with use because our bodies adapt to the stress that we're applying to them. And that goes for anything that we're doing. That goes for something as simple as a squat to something as simple as like a really heinous, tweaky finger lock in a crack (laughs) or a really heinous, tweaky, like shoulder movement on the climbing wall. Like your body is going to be able to adapt to those things and get stronger. And that includes like not just like the muscles adapting and getting stronger, but that also includes the tendons and ligaments adapting and getting stronger the cartilage adapting and getting stronger. We also know that blood vessels can adapt and get stronger. Um, Your lungs can adapt and get stronger. Like all of these things are going to adapt and change your heart to the stress that's being applied to it. Um, Mm. And we have some research to support that now. Like we've, they've done studies like MRI studies on weightlifters and they'll MRI their like ACL at the beginning of the training season They'll MRI it at the end of the training season, and their ACL actually gets thicker. Yeah. It's thicker at the end of the season. Yeah, you sent me an article. I think it was ACL in soccer players, maybe? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah they've and, done it in soccer players. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was so interesting. I'll share that in the show notes. That was really fascinating. You can actually see the thicker ACL in the, yeah. in the second image after the season. Yeah, totally. And that happens with you know cartilage in our bones. That happens... Uh, with a lot of different things. And so I think people need to realize that like your body doesn't like wear out with use. It gets better with use mm. um, because our bodies can adapt to anything that we're doing to them, even if it doesn't look quote unquote safe, you know, as long as it's dosed appropriately in a way that your body can tolerate and then adapt to your body's going to adapt to it. Mm. And that's why we can have a sport that's as variable as climbing and the various positions that we get into with climbing that look really weird to some people. <laughs> like, think about, like, weird, like, when you're pumping out and you're chicken winging or, like, when you're doing a really deep drop knee and, like, your friends who don't climb are, like, I'm going to barf <laughs> when they see that. Um, that's, like, normal for us, you know? And, like, uh-huh. our bodies can adapt to that kind of thing. And so I think it's important for people to realize that and... I think it can be really harmful to, like, uh, you know, tell people things like their body is breaking down or that we see some wear and tear in your shoulder or things like that because things don't – it just doesn't work like that. Hmm. Some of those things that we're seeing on MRI that people call wear and tear are just normal signs of aging. They're Hmm. normal in the healthy population. So if we MRI'd, like, 100 people 
out there, like we MRI'd their back, for example, you know, we're going to see something crazy like 70% of people who don't have back pain are going to have like a bulging disc. Interesting. You know, we can MRI a bunch of people's shoulders. A high amount of people are going to have a rotator cuff tear, a labral tear, or something that looks like wear and tear fraying in their shoulder, and they don't have shoulder pain. Wow. And they've even done studies where they've taken people who have these things on MRI, the shoulder, for example, and they'll MRI the other shoulder, and they have the same thing on the other shoulder, but only one of the shoulders is painful. Hmm. And so we have to be really careful when we tell people things like they're like wear and tear and their bodies can break down because, you know, that's not actually true. And it can set people up for a lot of problems. It can nocebo people, meaning like we can give them negative expectations about their body or about movement that makes them not trust their body. It makes them feel fragile. It makes them feel broken. And that can lead people down a pretty bad path and I've been on that path myself because these are things that I have been told about my body Hmm. you know an example with my shoulder pain I was told like my posture was bad and that my upper back was too stiff and because of that my shoulders were rolled forward and that's why I was getting shoulder pain and we just don't have evidence we don't have scientific evidence to show that that's actually something true something that we can tell people interesting But, you know, for a really long time, I was just like down about my posture, trying to fix that forever. And like that didn't fix my shoulder pain. Yeah. So it's it's interesting. It sounds like you alleviated that for yourself through strength training, through like overhead press and bench press and things like that. So what would you attribute that to? Like what I guess what was the issue that you think needed to be addressed there? Like what was the root cause? I think it's probably multifactorial. So like number one you know, reframing how I felt about my body instead of looking at it as like, oh, I've been professionally climbing for so long. I've just beaten my shoulders down. I've like worn my rotator cuff to a pulp. Like instead of thinking about it, like as someone who's broken, you know, just looking at it and looking at it as something that can be trained, you know, so something more positive. Um, so changing my mind frame around my body, but also um, I think also just strength. So Actually, physically getting stronger isn't necessarily, like, what helps people with their pain. It's okay. not the fact that, like, now you can you could only lift 12 pounds before and now you can lift 50 pounds. It's not that. It's, like, the act of training that is what's helping people by, you know, empowering them within their own bodies, number one. Number two, increasing, like, their tissue capacity. So training their bodies to tolerate force, hmm. which is what you need to be able to do when you're climbing. So if you have shoulder pain, something that you're doing is exceeding what your body can currently tolerate. So we have two options. You can stop doing that, which is like not the answer that most people want. Or we can train your body to tolerate that thing and then you can start doing it. Or we can train it to tolerate doing more of that thing. So a lot of times it's just strength training in order to increase like your tissue resiliency, increase what your tissues can tolerate. Hmm. And that's really important for climbing because, you know, there's kind of a lot of bad (laughs) information being thrown around out there about like, you know, you shouldn't hold your shoulder like this when you're climbing. You shouldn't let your elbow do this. You shouldn't let your wrist bend past 35 degrees because you're going to get elbow pain or shoulder pain. You can't rock climb if you're constantly trying to avoid 
certain positions. Like you're just not going to be able to climb mm-hmm. unless you're climbing a ladder. Like at some point in climbing, you're going to get into a position that some people might deem as like a shitty or dangerous or unsafe position for your shoulder, elbow, wrist, finger, whatever. And if we want to be, if we want to reduce our risk of injury, then we need to just make sure that our tissues can tolerate those positions. And strength training is one way to do that because it just trains our tissues to tolerate load in different positions. And that's what we need in order to reduce our risk. And I say reduce risk and not prevent injury because we can't always prevent every injury because Mm. it is multifactorial, but we can reduce our risk. Okay. I like that way of framing it. So you're really passionate about injury prevention or or reducing injury risk, I guess I should say. I mean, it sounds yeah. like that's really what set you down this path with all this stuff. And and I think this is a really great lead in because we haven't talked that much about rehab yet. I'm going to dig into some patron questions here. And this one I think is really relevant and I'd love to hear your thoughts. So cool. Adriel wants to know. He had a really bad A2 pulley injury about three years ago, and it sounds like he's just been rotating through injuries on all his fingers ever since, mm-hmm. uh, A2 pulleys and A4. And I, I kind of can relate to this because when I was newer climber, I had the same thing. Like, there's just always a sore finger, and it feels like you're playing whack-a-mole. Like, you, yeah. tape, you tape one until it's not sore anymore, and then a different one's sore, and you tape that one. So he wants to know... It sounds like he's managed to recover from those, but he keeps getting them. So his question is, what is a good way to try and avoid these chronic finger injuries? Yeah, so with finger injuries, a lot of times what I find is because a lot of them aren't like acute injuries, some of them are. Some of them are like with mine, like it popped dramatically when I tried to do a dyno or, you know, someone's grabbing a crimp and their foot pops and it shock loads their finger. Like those things you can't really avoid. Mm-hmm. They happen. But I find a lot of times with finger injuries, especially chronic finger injuries, especially like what he's saying, where they kind of like take turns being injured. A lot of that has to do with controlling your training volume and training your fingers so that they can tolerate a load. So a lot of times what happens when people get a finger injury is they get injured. They take time off to let the finger injury like recover. And in the process, they actually start getting deconditioned. So as soon as you're not using these structures, your body, you start getting deconditioned. Mm -hmm. And so resting is actually kind of like the worst advice um, (laughs) when it comes to finger injuries and a lot of injuries actually, because your body will start deconditioning and then you get locked into this cycle where you rest, the pain goes down, you start to feel a little bit better, then you start climbing again And your muscles can like quickly readapt to climbing, but your tendons and ligaments are not adapted to it anymore. And so you end up inadvertently ramping up too quickly and getting another injury. Mm -hmm. And so um, for a lot of these finger injuries, like there's, there's kind of like a twofold answer to these. One of them is we need to get a handle on your training volume because a lot of times it has to do with load management problems with people's climbing. Okay. And I find that the same thing happens in nutrition as happens in climbing training. A lot of people don't even know how much they're climbing. Like when someone comes to see me for rehab, especially a finger injury, like the first thing I'll ask them is like, how many days a week do you climb? How long are your sessions? How many climbs are you doing every session? 
how many attempts are you giving during each session? And what are the grades of the things you're climbing on? Just so we get an idea. Most people cannot answer those questions. <laughs> yeah. Like they kind of know how many days a week they climb. They kind of know like how long their sessions generally are, but that's about it. Yeah, yeah. And I guarantee you, if you were weightlifting, you would know exactly how many reps you did, how many <laughs> sets you did, how much weight you used. Hmm. Um, and we just don't do that in climbing. And part of it is because climbing is such a recreational sport that we don't think about it like that, you know, like keeping track of like what you're doing in your climbing session, just like nobody does that. So that's like one on, on the one hand, we need to do that. And that's more of like the long term solution. Okay. It's like we need to get a handle on your training volume and not only like make sure that it's appropriate for you, but make sure that we ramp you back into your climbing training in a way that your body can adapt to. Because otherwise you're going to get another finger injury. Mm -hmm. And the best way to control that is by tracking because guessing and like going by feel doesn't work. Okay. So that's kind of a long-term solution that a lot of people don't think about when they have a finger injury. They want to know, like, what rehab can I do or, like, what exercises can I do or should I rest? So then there's, like, the rehab side where we rehab is not very different than training. I approach rehab the same way that I approach training. It's just that our entry point is going to be a little bit different. So if you have a finger injury then you're, we're going to start you on a hangboard program at probably a different level than we would if you came to me for a training for performance. But it's the same concept. Like we're training your fingers to tolerate load. We're training your fingers to get stronger. And so if you come to me with a finger injury, we're going to find a way to load your finger. Hmm. Whether that's with some kind of grip, grip device. I like to use the, um, the tension block because it's really easy to just clip weight to that. There's a bunch of different grips available on that thing. So, you know, we can really target someone's rehab, but we can also go straight to the hangboard. And a lot of people are surprised they can hang body weight on a hangboard with a finger injury. And if they're able to tolerate that, then that's our starting point and we go from there. So for finger injuries, a lot of times um, I'm getting someone on a hangboard program, actually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you'd get, you would get Adriel on a hangboard. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, like, the first session is just find, about finding, like, what he can tolerate, basically. Okay. Um, can you speak to that a little bit more? I've, I've heard uh, Esther Smith talk about this a little bit, and she talked about, like, finding your, like, familiar pain um, mm-hmm. or familiar discomfort or something like that. Can you speak to what level of discomfort is to be expected and is maybe okay? Yeah. So like with any kind of rehab, you know, discomfort is sometimes part of the process, not always, but um, a lot of times. And we want to make sure that with um, injuries, we're stressing them adequately. And so sometimes people will experience discomfort with that. And it's not necessarily a bad thing. For me, I'm always trying to identify people who are kind of pushers and people who are kind of avoiders. Okay. People who avoid pain need to be pushed a little bit. People who push into pain and push too far need to be held back a little bit. So sometimes in rehab, I'm trying to figure out who those people are um, because they might need a slightly different approach. Mm -hmm. But in general, some discomfort is expected and it's part of the process. So with rehab, we're really looking for the sweet spot. So if we don't do enough, if we don't stress the injury enough or we don't do anything and we just rest, which is the mistake I made, with my injury, my really catastrophic finger injury that we talked about in the beginning, I just rested. 
then nothing's going to happen. Your body is not going to heal as much as we need it to for you to be hanging on your fingers Hmm. for climbing. Um, If we do too much, then yeah, we can aggravate it. Um, If we really push it, we can make the injury worse or we can just push ourselves to the point where it's just constantly inflamed. But in between, there's going to be this sweet spot where it's just enough stress to get your body to adapt and change, but not so much that we're inflaming things and irritating things and making it worse. So we're kind of looking for that. And it's going to be a range. So I always tell people like a little discomfort is okay. As long as you're not having more pain in the 24 to 48 hours after your hangboard. Okay. That's super helpful. And that's important because you can have some pain or you can have a small flare up in symptoms directly after okay the hangboard session and that's that might actually be okay interesting okay um as long as you kind of return to your baseline whatever your baseline is it doesn't necessarily mean totally pain-free if that's not how you started but you should be returning to your baseline within like that 24 48 hour window and if, if that's happening then we're probably hitting that sweet spot okay so that's really important but then you can't forget the bigger picture of getting a handle on your training which is kind of like the next level yeah. where we're wanting to ramp people back into their climbing. If we're not controlling for that, then that's why people end up with like another finger injury. You know? mm. mm-hmm. So yeah, it's kind of like a two part, two part rehab process there. Okay. One thing I want to add from my own experience for, for Adriel or for other people listening, what did you call the people that are kind of overstoker with this stuff? Did you call them pushers? I just call them pushers. I don't know if there's like an official term. I, no, I, I like it. I think I would self-identify as a pusher. And uh, when I got my first real finger injury, I had a pretty bad pulley injury a few years ago. Mm-hmm. I I was freaking out. I immediately read everything there was to read about finger injuries. I listened to everything there was. And it wasn't really like a pop or like a, a really severe tear or anything. I just knew that it was kind of messed up. And I made the mistake of trying to jump into all the, like, remodeling the tissue and stressing the tissue and all that stuff maybe too soon. I tried doing that right away without resting at all. Yeah. And it didn't work. And it kind of, if anything, made it a little worse. Mm-hmm. And then what was interesting is that I finally just, I was like, okay, I'm I'm just freaking out. I'm doing too much here. My finger's been kind of swollen this whole time. And so I finally just chilled out and I took two or three weeks totally off until the swelling had totally gone down and the finger had just kind of chilled out. And then I did the exact same protocol again that I had tried before and it worked flawlessly. It just got a little bit stronger, actually a lot stronger every single session. And Mm -hmm. I went from... I remember especially, I think I trained like pockets at first until I could hang with like 50 pounds added without pain. And then I I started training my other grips and I I started out training full crimps, standing on a bathroom scale, taking off like half my body weight. Mm -hmm. And it was shocking how quickly it got all the way back up to being able to like crimp at body weight on a really tiny hold. You know, it 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 was really impressive progress every single session, but... For an acute injury, at least for me, taking that little bit of time off to let the the injury kind of chill out was uh, was a really important piece of the, the puzzle. Yeah, that makes sense. There's definitely situations where taking a couple days off to let things chill, uh, you know, maybe even a week off to let things chill is kind of necessary. 
But at the same time, like, um, I, I think like three weeks, two or three weeks off might've been a lot. Like, interesting. Okay. There's probably an entry point that's like below what you were trying to do that you could have started on. So like, sure. Yeah. <laughs> literally like take your TheraBand and do some finger curls with mm. a TheraBand, um, squeeze like a, a stress ball, hang on a pull-up bar. There's things that are like even more regressed that you could start on. That's probably going to get you there a little bit faster than completely taking three weeks off. Mm -hmm. And the more that we can have you do, the better your outcome is going to be. Because part of the thing that we're trying to do with athletes is prevent them from deconditioning. Okay. Yeah. So it's important to keep them as active as possible. So that's why I try to avoid. And there's definitely cases where I will be like, let's chill for a week and then revisit this. But especially like the worse the injury is, but sometimes there's just like an entry point that's like even lower than what you might have thought, you know, like you probably don't think about like squeezing a stress ball as like anything for your hand, you mm -hmm. know, but like that movement can actually help get swelling out of your hand. It can help that swelling go away faster, that movement, because that's how swelling works. You have to like move these joints to get the swelling out. So like that could have been a starting point potentially, even though you would probably would, would have been like, what the hell? This is nothing. Like, <laughs> <laughs> no, that's, that's really helpful. That's interesting. Yeah. And sometimes that's where we have to start. And if you, if you look at like, um, because surgery is a trauma, you know, when people get surgery, they're not only recovering from the injury that they had that they needed the surgery for, but they're also recovering from the trauma of surgery, which is like pretty traumatic in some cases. Sure. Yeah. Um, and now if you look at like some of the research, we're having people who've had hip surgeries get up and start walking on their with a walker in the hospital right away. We're having ACL patients start moving their legs, start bending their knee right away because your outcomes improve when you start hmm. moving sooner. Before they used to put someone in a full leg cast and be like, okay, we're going to wait four weeks and then we're going to start rehabbing because yeah. you're so swollen and painful from the surgery. And they started finding out that the sooner they got people moving, the better the outcomes. And so that's kind of how I approach like any injury um, in my office is like, I want to find out how we can get you moving as soon as possible. Okay. Even if that moving is not like a hangboard or climbing yet. Cool. Thanks for that. Do you have any fingerboard recommendations or, or resources that I could point people to in the show notes? Any articles you've written or anything that you recommend for people for uh, for training or for injuries? Uh, I guess for let's let's go for Adriel's situation where he's trying to kind of bulletproof his fingers to prevent finger injuries. Um, I I don't have any articles that I've written on this yet, but number one, I would just recognize that finding the entry point is like kind of the first priority in rehab. So whatever that may be, uh, it might not be hangboarding. It might not be climbing. It could just be squeezing a stress ball. Okay. So finding your entry point and starting there, no matter how regressed it might be, could literally just be you squeezing and opening your hand. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I've literally had people do that. I've done that for injuries that I've had and it does help get rid of the swelling faster. And then when you are ready for um, rehab, and starting to load the fingers. I for for me for hangboarding, I always start with the Eva Lopez hangboard protocols. And there's a couple of reasons for that. Number one, because it's been researched, I'm always gonna go with something that's been researched and tested before I go with something more anecdotal. 
um, just because it's been measured and controlled for in, you know, a controlled environment that's an experiment. Okay. Um, so her protocol, Eva Lopez is a Spanish climber, climbs really hard, literally has her PhD on finger strength training. So mm-hmm. that's where I like to start because her protocols are researched and they work really well. And then secondly, I like her protocols because she has some parameters built into the program that allow you to auto-regulate how much load to use. Um, okay. So she kind of programs the hangboarding the same way that I like to program strength training. So I like to use reps in reserve to auto-regulate strength training for climbers. And I do this for myself as a power lifter too. Her hangboard protocols incorporate something like that. She calls it the effort level, but basically... What you need to do is find a load that will allow you to hang for the amount of time that she recommends there while keeping the effort level at a certain level, meaning like you're going to have like a certain number of seconds left in the tank before you hit failure. Okay. And I like that because for any kind of strength training, and this goes for rehab or if we're trying to perform, for strength, it's not actually necessary to go to failure to get stronger. Hmm. And I think a lot of people get trapped in this mindset where like if they go harder, you know, harder, faster, stronger, like they go heavier on the hangboard, they do more, they get closer to failure, they do fail, um, like that's better. But that's not actually true. We just need to get like sort of close to failure and you're still going to get stronger from that. So even though it doesn't feel like you're doing as much training or your training is hard, the benefit of doing that over going to failure is that your outcomes are going to be the same. But if you train to failure consistently, then you're going to end up accumulating a lot of fatigue mm-hmm. and a lot of stress in your tendons and ligaments that your body can't adapt to. Eventually, that's all going to catch up to you. And you're not going to be able to adapt to it. So, you know, best case scenario, you're going to stop getting something out of the training program. You're going to stop adapting to it. It's going to stop working. Mm. Uh, worst case scenario, you end up you know, potentially within an injury situation because you're pushing yourself too much. So got it. Um, I like her protocols because she has that built in to the protocols. So I want to add a little clarification. So the, the reps and reserve thing, would that be like if you had someone training sets of five, you'd be doing that with a weight where they could probably go to like six or seven if they really tried? Yeah, so like usually I'll program someone like maybe like around an RPE8, which would be uh, like two reps left in reserve. So like, yeah, okay. if they were doing like five reps, it would be something that they could have done seven reps with. Okay. Um, and so we're leaving two reps in reserve or two reps left in the tank is what I mean by that. And then for the hangboard, so Eva has people train 10 second hangs with weights that they probably could go to like 14 seconds with. Yeah, so one of her protocols is like a 10-second hang with a four-second margin or four effort level, meaning you've got four more seconds left before you would actually fail. Okay. It does take some practice to be able to calibrate that for yourself. Like a lot of people are like, I don't know what that means. Like maybe I could have done more, maybe not, I'm not sure. Yeah. I always tell people just err on the side of being conservative. You can always add more weight the following week if you want or if you need to. And eventually, after you've done this for a couple of weeks and you've thought of your training or your rehab in this way, you'll be able to calibrate it for yourself. Mm. Um, and I think it's a really valuable skill for athletes to have because, A, I want them to have some autonomy in their training. Like, I want them to have the freedom to choose how much weight to put on the bar or how much weight 
to be able to hang with. That's really important that people have that kind of autonomy with their training. Mm -hmm. And I lost my train of thought. (laughs) (laughs) That's okay. Um, Oh, it take it just takes a little while to get used to it, but like it is a, it is a good skill to have. So like, yeah, I want you to have autonomy, but I also want you to like kind of realize how training affects your body, how certain exercises, how certain weight affects your body, um, how outside stress, nutrition, sleep affects your body, and all of those things are going to impact your training, especially if you're auto regulating. You're going to start to realize like how those things are affecting you as an athlete. Hmm. And be able to adjust your training so that it's appropriate for you for that day. And that's a really valuable skill to have. And there's other ways of doing that. We can do measurements. We can measure your velocity. We can, there's a whole bunch of other ways that we can measure these things to kind of spit out a number and tell you where you're at that day. And I think that's valuable too. But I think it's really important for people to have this awareness and be able to auto-regulate for themselves on the fly. And it doesn't require any additional equipment or any additional knowledge um, in terms of like crunching data to like figure out where you're at. Got it. Man, Natasha, I could talk to you for <laughs> for so many more hours. <laughs> I want to respect your time. I think we should probably start wrapping up. But man, I have like a dozen questions bouncing around in my head. So maybe sure. I'll have to have you back on <laughs> or something. Yeah, I mean, I love talking about this. Stuff. Yeah, I'll yeah. Go, I'll great. go for hours. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Um, okay, I have one more listener question. This is kind of a fun one. Uh, do you have any climbing role models? Climbing role or models? Or climbing heroes? That's the question? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I guess like early on, my old climbing coach who helped teach me a lot about movement um, and his partner at the time, uh, she was like a very good climber and like not only strong, but very like technically skilled Hmm. and also had like was very disciplined Uh, could focus during training sessions and I just got to kind of like watch them so I learned a lot about movement from him his name is Rob Mulligan okay um I also had another coach who helped me uh Chad who helped me with movement as well but like he learned a lot from Rob too so Rob Mulligan really influenced me in terms of movement he's been a climber since the 70s he's down in Southern California climbing coach he had a ballet background and so did his partner at the time. Her name is Brandy Prophet. Okay. Um, I think she's in New Mexico now. Um, I don't really know. I haven't like talked to her in a really long time, so I don't really know what she's doing now, but like, I really got to kind of like watch their coaching relationship and like learn a lot of movement from Rob um, and just, just kind of watch how disciplined and like skilled and strong Brandy was. And like, that really influenced me. Like it made me want to become a better climber. Um, it made me want to learn how to move better. It made me want to become stronger. So I really looked up to her and him a lot, like early on. Mm-hmm. Um, and then Lisa Rands was always like a huge inspiration because okay. she was like so freaking strong, like awesome c- climbing like V11 when V11 was like a big deal. <laughs> uh, you know, I think 12 too. Um, yeah. Like climbing like V10s and 11s and 12s and Bishop when it was like no other women were really doing that at the time. Hell yeah. Like a couple were. Yeah. 
Um, and she also like grew up in Southern California. So I had the opportunity to um, compete with her, climb around her. I've competed with her a few times um, back in the day. She's always, and she's just always been so strong and badass. Like I've always looked up to Lisa. Those are probably the big ones. Awesome. I mean, I've definitely been inspired along the way by like lots of different people, but those are probably like the, the most impactful ones, I guess. Perfect. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I'd love to ask, what is something that you have been especially grateful for lately? Especially grateful for? God, just being healthy. Awesome. <laughs> We're in the middle of a pandemic. Um, <laughs> yeah, I don't have any, dude. I have my health. Um, I have a climbing wall at home. I have a strength training gym at home. I'm really grateful for those. And You have one of the coolest looking tension boards I've ever seen. That's a really beautiful looking wall. I love my tension board. Yeah, it turned out really well. And I'm, I'm so glad I went with it. Like I not sponsored by them at all, but like I will rep the shit out of them because it's just kind of an awesome system and the holds are so ergonomic and friendly and um, just really fun climbing. And I love that I don't have to route set for myself. It's connected mm. to an app um, mm-hmm. and I can just pick climbs and, now I've got my LEDs all set up, so I can just, it just will illuminate whatever climbs I want to do. It's so easy. Yeah, really grateful for for that. Really grateful for just my general health and also just, you know, for being injury-free right now. It's great. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. Uh, where can people find you and connect with you? Um, you can probably the best place to find me is on Instagram. Um, you can find me at Natasha Barnes on Instagram. It's the best p- place to hit me. Um, they can also reach out through my website, natashabarnesrehab.com. I have a contact form on there if anyone wants to ask any questions or get a consult or talk about training. Okay. Um, you could. That's also linked um, in my Instagram Okay, I'll I'll link to those things in the show notes too. Oh, cool. Yeah, I'm on Facebook, but I'm not. I don't. I'm not really like that on it. So. Okay. Good luck reaching me. On Facebook. <laughs> that's that's just the way Facebook is going. I think these days. Yeah. Are, are you taking any <laughs> online clients right now? If people want to work with. I uh, am. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Yeah. Cool. And I am curious. Tell me about your foundational strength training for climbing program. Oh, I'm so glad you asked. Um, yeah, that's something I've been wanting to create for a really long time. Um, that's basically like the foundational program that I will have athletes do when they come to me wanting to train or wanting to work on just general strength um, for climbing. Okay. So it's like my signature program. It's an auto-regulated program. So you'll learn how to use RPE and I have a lot of resources like video links and stuff on there where people can learn how to do the barbell movements and lots of explanation and photos and diagrams of positions and techniques so people can learn how to do them like safely and effectively. And you can also substitute with kettlebells or dumbbells if you want to. Awesome. Yeah. Cool. Is that is that a... Is that like a PDF thing or is that, what's the format of that? Is that a book and is that like yeah. something people can purchase? How does that work? Yeah, people people can purchase that on my website. It's a PDF. Um, okay. If you purchase it, you'll get a link for an instant download. Um, and then the the PDF, you can like click on um, links to videos and stuff like that. Um, oh, okay. And then there's also like a program included 
in that PDF, which is at the end of the PDF, after you've learned like all the movements and how to use RPE and all of that. Okay. Awesome. Yeah. I have one last question for you, Natasha. Sure. You always have the coolest hair. <laughs> as long as I can remember from that first video that I saw of Park Life, you guys bouldering in Yosemite, you know, and seeing pictures of you over the years, you always have a really cool and unique hairstyle. I can tell that you you care about style and and uh, think about your your hairstyle. So I'm curious, what is the name of your current hairstyle? What do you call that? <laughs> Um, I call it a power mullet. A power mullet. I love it. <laughs> That's fantastic. Yeah. Can um, you describe it for yeah. people? I'll, I'll add some it. pictures it's, to the show notes, but. Well, you know, business in the front, party in the back. Yeah. Um, but it's a power mullet, so it's a little different than like, you know, a trashy mullet. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I love it. Um, I honestly... I, I have to say that I am I the girl who's been cutting my hair for the last forever, like, I don't know, eight or ten years, mm-hmm. um, is a really good friend of mine. Her name is Sophie Lynn. She also lives in Oakland and has her own hair cutting business. Okay. Um, I'm really just her canvas. So <laughs> I come to her with, like, a sort of an idea of, like, what I like, and she makes it a reality. So... And she's been doing that with my hair for the last forever. I've gone through like so many different hairstyles. So that's awesome. Is uh, <laughs> do you have ideas for the next hairstyle, or is the power mullet here to stay for a while? Yeah, shout out, shout out to Sophie. Um, <laughs> the power mullet is here to stay for a while. Okay. I'm digging it, and I'm like working really hard to grow my hair out, which grows really slow. Hmm. Um, probably because I flat iron it all the time, but. <laughs> Um, yeah, I'll be, I'll have this hairstyle for a while, probably. Nice. Nice. Okay. I'll find some, uh, Instagram photos and link to those in the show notes so nice. people can see the power mullet. <laughs> well, Natasha, thank you so much for your time. This has been super interesting and I'd love to hear if people have questions and, uh, and, and yeah, I'd, I'd love to, to stay in touch and maybe have you back on sometime. Yeah, thanks for having me on, Stephen. It's been really fun to talk, and I'm always down to talk about all of this stuff. So <laughs> I can tell you love it. It's really fun talking to you about it. I can tell you just get excited, and yeah, I think we could do this for hours, so it's been yeah. a really good time. Yeah. Good luck training tonight. Thank you. Yeah. Hope you feel strong. Hope it goes well. It will. It probably will. Nice. I just had two days off, so. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> <laughs> I look forward to talking to you soon. Sounds good. All right. Take care. Okay. Bye-bye. I hope you guys enjoyed that episode and took away at least one helpful nugget. If you'd like to have your question asked on the show, head over to thenuggetclimbing.com and click on the support the podcast button at the top, and you'll find the option to become a patron for as little as $1 per month. If you are not in a position to support the podcast financially, I entirely understand, and you can still help out. Spread the word, share your favorite episodes with your friends, leave a rating on Apple Podcasts, however you want to do it. It all helps, and I really appreciate all of it. Thank you guys for listening. Stay strong. We'll see you next time. You gotta prove it. Let's